So hello and welcome to this Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jasani. Today it's my great pleasure to welcome Dan Chan. Dan is a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care and head of the ECC service at the RVC's Queen Mother Hospital for Animals. Dan is also a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Nutrition and provides the hospital with a nutritional support service. So thanks very much, Dan, for joining me today. My pleasure. So, Dan, I'm hoping that we'll be able to get together again in the future and discuss a variety of of topics relating to ECC, um, as and when you have the time, of course. But today I actually wanted to focus on nutrition and to discuss nutrition in the context of sick animals. So this is clearly an area that has been the focus of quite a lot of attention um, in both human and veterinary medicine over the last decade or two. Um, And there's been a growing recognition of the importance of nutrition in sick patients and also an understanding of the adverse consequences of malnutrition in this population. So I wanted to start by asking you if you could explain some of the kind of adverse pathophysiology that happens in a sick or injured animal undergoing starvation so basically, what are some of the consequences of malnutrition that we should be worried about in these patients? Yeah, that's actually a very interesting uh, topic in that, that there, there's also some problems by defining malnutrition. Because one of the things that is uh, complicated is that we don't have a set of criteria we can agree on that defines an animal as malnourished. And it could be that the effects of malnutrition might be actually... Um, distinct from actually the short-term uh, lack of nutrition. Um, because one of the things that classically is attributed to the consequence of malnutrition include uh, overall weakness, uh, dependence on mechanical ventilation, uh, wound healing problems, um, metabolic changes that occur uh, due to malnutrition. And those might actually be pretty late on Effects and we don't really know. Ten days, two weeks. When when does true malnutrition set in? But there's a whole uh, host of consequences that might occur within three days. So in animals, we actually can document changes in the immune response uh, after three days starvation in a healthy animal. So what happens in the sort of sick animal. Is that shorter? Is that more pronounced? So the things that we don't understand. But one of the things that is becoming a huge issue is the relationship between lack of food intake and risk of infection. So in, in human hospitals, they can actually show a distinct relationship between not being able to eat anything and risk of hospital acquired infection, which is a huge topic. So there are things in the scale of immunosuppression, uh, risk of, of nosocomial infections, but also there are changes to actual metabolic function and changes in muscle tone, um, which are distinct from just burning fat. So, cause, I, mean, I guess my impression, of, if you look in a book about the question I've just asked you, there's usually quite a long list of things. So I guess just trying to summarize what you said, I suppose, is it fair to say that there's a potentially long list of adverse pathophysiology that may occur in sick patients that are malnourished, but that that potentially also depends on other factors in terms of the time scale, in terms of the actual nature of their disease. And so actually, it can be quite a complicated situation, but is it fair to say that there's been an appreciation of the fact that malnourishment in sick patients 
is more important than maybe we used to think it was? Absolutely. I think that for many years it was all speculative in veterinary patients based on the experience they had in human medicine and also in experimental models. In terms of clinical practicing veterinary patients, now there's actually some data coming out that supports some of these speculative features. For example, adverse uh, impact on infection rates, that's all been speculative, but now we might actually have some, some evidence to show that. And even things such as relationship to outcome was we thought it's not going to be able, we're not going to be able to produce that data. But now we're actually getting data, at least from retrospective studies, where if an animal is in the road to malnutrition, their, their outcome uh, is going to be compromised. And so that, that's exciting in the sense that we're now getting data out yeah. there. Yeah. It's not just like we believe this is a problem. We actually now think that we have data to support that there are consequences to animals not being fed while sick. Excellent. And so, so for today, I, didn't, I thought we don't really have the time to discuss um, kind of enteral versus parenteral nutrition and the different roots of enteral, and that's one of the things that I hope we can come back some other time in the future and talk about. Um, this is one of kind of my obvious questions, but I guess if you could just sort of define, I suppose, what we mean by nutritional support and then kind of what are the, the main indications for it. So what sort of patient should we start to be thinking about? Maybe we should be providing nutritional support to this patient. Yeah, I think the, the term nutritional support is very loose, and I think that it can be applying various levels because one can argue that using hand-feeding techniques and, and warming the food, spending time with a patient, hand-feeding are all part of nutritional support. And I think classically that's what's been accepted as it. Um, and I think now that has moved to provide more effective means. And by effective, I mean quant you can quantify it. And so using feeding devices such as nasoesophageal, esophagostomy tubes kind of allows the clinician to ensure a certain amount of nutrition being delivered. So to my mind, that is what we refer to as more effective means of nutritional support. And, um, actually, you reminded me that, um, but I think we'll do it right at the end. I'm going to ask you about syringe feeding and your opinion on that as well, but we'll do that right at the end. Um, so I know that one of the things you often stress to us is that although we have now got an increased appreciation of the need for nutritional support in sick patients, that it's not appropriate to necessarily start that in all patients, or at least not straight away. And part of that is to do with the stability of the patient. So I wondered if you could explain a little bit more about why might it be inappropriate to start nutritional support in an unstable patient and, and what we mean by unstable as well. Yeah, so that's a very good question. And it, it, I think there is um, sort of movements where people want to be uh, aggressive in providing nutritional support, and, and, and sometimes that means starting very early. Um, one of the important appreciations is that to feed an animal requires them to have a receptive gastrointestinal tract. And a receptive gastrointestinal tract is one where there is motility, um, that the blood supply to the gastrointestinal tract is there. And therefore, if there are things that are telling the body to divert blood from the gastrointestinal tract, such as being in a cardiovascular shock, hypovolemic shock, 
being severely hypothermic, then the intestinal tract is not going to be ready. So the consequences of feeding too early where the blood supply, for example, is not uh, adequate, you might actually just have more complications. So you might have emotile gastrointestinal dysfunction. So you have ileus, distension, pain, all associated with uh, feeding too early, and therefore the animal might have a complication such as regurgitate, vomit, aspirate. And so therefore you're not actually gain anything by, by starting too early. So sort of one of the tenets of starting nutritional support is that you, you have to address first things first. So is the animal in shock? Treat that. Dehydrated, if there's electrolyte changes, those are things that need to be addressed before the body is actually going to be ready to receive nutrients and, and be able to utilize that. Excellent. And um, again, when we come back hopefully in the future and talk about enteral, parenteral and the different routes of enteral, we can talk a little bit more about in which patients' enteral feeding per se might be contraindicated, but we, we'll come back onto that, I think, in the future. Um, and so you kind of touched on it already, but one of the things, obviously, when we're thinking about providing nutritional support is to try and figure out how much kind of energy to provide the patient. So what are the calorific requirements of this patient in front of me? Um, I wondered if you could just explain a little bit about what we mean by um, resting energy requirement and also to comment on the, um, the so-called illness factors because I remember <clears throat> maybe a decade ago sitting doing some notes on nutritional support for people and illness factors were all the rage at the time and it was you need to use this illness factor for this and, and so what are they and are they still valid and should we still be using them? Yeah, so that's actually a very interesting question and is a bit controversial but probably less so nowadays. But so sort of the the root of where these illness factors came in actually came from when nutritional support really took off in the human uh, field. And that's probably around the 60s and the 70s, where there was a recognition of the sort of consequence of malnutrition. So there was a reactive movement that we had to restore uh, the energy deficit. And therefore, we had made assumptions that we need to sort of um, supply in excess of what they actually, the animal or the patients needed. And so that then led to extrapolations where they would estimate um, a given disease to produce a certain amount of increase in energy requirements. Now, because we know from physiology that certain bodily functions require energy. Mm -hmm. And in stress states, in, in the context of fever, you might increase some metabolic function. So then there was just an assumption that all diseases in all patients behave the same way. So you had these charts created where a surgical patient had an X amount of increased energy requirements that we would put on top of their sort of base, basal requirements. Now, basal energy requirements is basically the minimal amount of energy to support basic bodily functions. So this is not an active animal, it's just an animal that's basically in a coma. Mm -hmm. So that's basal, that's, that's the absolute minimum at which if you're below, the animal has to get energy from storage samples. Now resting is a bit more generous than basal because it, it does um, apply to a patient that's inactive but conscious and doing a bit more. So when we have a patient that's hospitalized, normally they are quiet in a kennel environment, and therefore there is more than just the absolute basic. Now, once we realize that feeding towards their 
illness factors actually increase risk of complications rather than sort of restore the, these functions that we thought about immune function and wound healing. There's now been sort of a, a review of whether or not we should be striving to feed to these sort of extrapolated um, energy requirements during illness. Then a series of papers have actually documented that when we actually measure the energy expenditure by an animal in a hospitalized setting, that we're way off the estimates. Yeah, so uh, indirect calimetry is uh, one method that it's uh, a research tool where we actually can measure the expended energy that an animal. Um, requires or is, is utilizing based on oxygen consumption, CO2 production. There are various assumptions, not a perfect technology, but it's one of the best ways to determine whether a patient is requiring a lot of energy. And when that was applied to a patient population, surprisingly, the energy expended by these hospitalized patients in the intensive care unit were very close to a resting energy requirement just so, based on weight. So someone's actually done that to clinical patients? Yes, and that, that's been done and it's sort of one of those seminal papers because it put the question mark on whether we should apply these sure. uh, resting mm -hmm. uh, these illness factors to hospitalized patients. So when we have the pieces of if you overfeed an animal or, sh or give more than they need, you have high risk of complication and that's borne out in a couple of papers. And then we have more basic information what what animals actually expend. Now that's just part of our assessment because although we think that their energy expenditure is closer to resting based on body weight, that's a starting point and that shouldn't be used as that must be what the animal needs no matter what and that's not true. There are exceptions where an animal does indeed need but I think for the initial target that we should be aiming to provide a hospitalized patient should be closer to their resting energy requirement. There are a couple of equations that you can uh, use to get that estimate. And for the ones that's more used most commonly is the, that at resting energy requirement is equal to the body weight of the animal in kilograms times uh, 70, um, but that raised to the exponent of 0.75. Mm -hmm. And that gives sort of a consistent um, estimation of what an animal of that weight. Where is that derived from? So that is actually, that information is derived from uh, calorimetry uh, uh, data, uh, and it's done on species levels. So, or even to, like, for example, reptiles have a different mm. exponent apply in birds. This has to do with the metabolic rate. And, and the, the exponent is very important because it accounts for size, uh, surface area to weight ratio impacts energy expenditure. Yeah. And so it is, uh, it is done so that it takes into account several things. For, for example, if you use that equation, it accommodates the very large 70 kilo animal yeah. and also the 0.5 kilo animal to a more uh, accurate it does, There's no, um, aside from the size, there's no factor in of, of age, I guess. In Not as we currently know. Now, there are, there's a possibility that we need to adjust for further things. For example, in people, they have um, factors that they estimate for at least for nutrient requirement for geriatric patients. Right. Now, that work hasn't been done for us to say that the resting energy requirement is the adjustment uh, during the hospitalized phase. But for example, 
a growing animal has different energy requirements mm-hmm. to support growth than an adult. So, does it, are, can we factor that into the equation in any way? Or? Is it sort I, of a bit, had a bit more? Well, the, <laughs> so the interesting thing about that is if you were to say, what's the energy requirement of a growing dog? Depending on the age and probably the breed itself, mm-hmm. there are estimates where you can go three to four times resting energy requirements mm-hmm. because they, you know, a newborn puppy needs to double its weight mm-hmm. every seven to ten days mm-hmm. and therefore that animal will probably need something like three to four times its resting energy requirement but because of growth rates being so different between a chihuahua and a great dane mm-hmm. that there are unknowns mm-hmm. in that equation about how much you would estimate that's excellent because um, <clears throat> speaking of um you know cases that need a lot more i mean we recently had a patient didn't we in icu that was very catabolic and was receiving quite a lot of nutrition i think so i guess in summary we're saying that the rest of the energy requirement is a good starting point for all our patients and then we should hopefully be able to try and uh, adjust our nutritional support based on progress um absolutely i think because the other thing i guess the other sort of we won't cough on a tangent today but in the context of kind of maintenance fluid therapy i think the same conversation comes up a lot and i'm when I'm doing CPD for people and stuff, it, it's always, we know that it can't be the same for all our patients, but exactly what it is is another question. And, and I guess that the similar kind of considerations to what you've said. Um, I suppose the other thing is I, I tend to take the view that when we have these patients that we think are malnourished and we're starting some kind of nutritional support, then I suppose I tend to think, well, at least we're making some progress. And even if we're not necessarily doing it as perfectly as we could, we are taking things in the right direction, which I guess is always good. And and the other thing I was thinking when you were saying about the the illness factors is that it seems to be that there aren't many things that a supra-physiological solution is the right way. So I know we've talked about that in in other critical care type contexts. Excellent. And um, I know one of the potential complications that we, we worry about is um, is so-called refeeding syndrome. And again, we don't really have the time today to go into the kind of pathophysiology of that in a lot of detail. But I just wanted to mention it really and just to say, could you explain a little bit about what it is and also which patients that we start nutritional support in, we should be especially alert to the possibility of refeeding syndrome uh, potentially developing? Yeah, I think refeeding syndrome is... Uh an extremely interesting sort of complication. It's um, it's a little bit, um, the risks are a little overblown. And that what I mean by that is actually a very rare complication. Mm-hmm. But I think the best way to think about refeeding syndrome is a body that is not ready to be fed. Um, one of the risk factors for developing is actually an animal that hasn't been properly resuscitated, so cardiovascularly, uh, definitely uh, dehydration electrolytes. So if those things are not um, in the sort of within a normal physiologic range, then the risk of, of refeeding syndrome is higher. And what refeeding syndrome, to, to basically summarize, mm-hmm. is um, shifts in electrolytes from the intracellular to extracellular compartment that are responding to suddenly being fed. So one of the best ways to think about is if you have a prolonged starvation state, and and that's the hard part to define, prolonged starvation, but it probably means weeks. So if you're not in that state, your body is not really looking to, you know, the cells are not looking to divide. There's not a lot of surplus. So it's almost in a dormant state. Um, And one of the things that 
sort of decreases sort of insulin trafficking because there's no glucose being produced and therefore there's no need to um, have surges of insulin glucagon. And, and in that state, this dormant state, where cellular activity is low, um, there's very little insulin, there's quite a bit of glucagon. And then if you feed a high carbohydrate load, for example, you are shooting up the blood glucose levels that create a surge of insulin. And, and that's the signal for the cells to start making ATP and divide. Well, if the resources are not there, so they don't have any sort of uh, stored uh, nutrients, then all that activity, that signal to start divide, the cells to divide, depletes the body of very important nutrients like phosphate. Um, but things like potassium, magnesium, all shift and the body can cope. So there's a host of complications that range from just uh, hypo, hypophosphatemia and, and red cell lysis to respiratory failure, um, cardiac failure. Um, and it's so it can be quite catastrophic, um, but can be supported, but it requires really intensive care. But it's pretty rare. I think within the literature, convincing cases are probably less than five. Um, but, but people talk about it because it is um, sort of a hallmark of nutrition gone awry. Yeah. Um, so I guess, so in summary then, um, we're back to our first principle about making sure that we think the patients are as stable as we can get them before we start nutrition. And then if we, if our perception is that they have had more prolonged starvation, then is the answer to that to introduce their nutrition more slowly? Is that I think that that's the sort of conventional wisdom. There is not a lot of data. Um, and people are trying to figure out, mm. are there good markers to predict which patients will undergo these changes or not? We don't have that data. The the conventional wisdom has always been be more conservative, try mm. to slow down the surge of carbohydrate, maybe not even provide carbohydrate mm. as a primary source. And I know that there's a sort of a, um, a almost a reflex to provide an animal that hasn't been eating glucose strip. Mm. And actually that might be not the best thing. It is energy, but it will create this surge of glucose. So perhaps when an animal first comes in, and, and one of the things that vets get involved is, is uh, rescued animals or animals that have been neglected, mm. and they're usually very malnourished, mm. and the instinct is to feed, and maybe actually we should resuscitate them, rehydrate them, mm. correct their electrolytes before feeding of any kind, including of dextrose, uh, because that might actually push them over. So I think that that is an important message. That's really interesting. And um, but so it's not, it's because you, you mean you're right, you know, you, you kind of see it written anywhere there's a chapter or a paper on nutrition support, refeeding syndrome gets a mention. Um, but it's not, you're saying it's not that, do you think it's not that common because it's underreported or do you think it really is not that common? I think it's actually not just a, a phenomenon of underreporting. Um, the true refeeding syndrome is a pretty remarkable sort of syndrome. And they are, changes that might occur after feeding that people are attributing to refeeding syndrome, but it's probably not. Mm. So there's actually a, a case series of cats that they call, um, basically they have to change the title to just hypophosphatemia associated with alimentation because it was not a, a, a clear case of having refeeding syndrome. There were electrolyte changes mm. that occurred following feeding, but that large, you know, there was like less than 20 cats. 
perhaps didn't fit the bill. And so now you only have a few case reports out there that have a convincing case. And even in large retrospective studies um, that actually have nutritional support, it's not mentioned as a complication that they documented. So I think it is probably not over-reported. It is pretty rare, even in people. Excellent. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, so I hope that we've managed to kind of give um, give our listeners like a broad overview of, of some of the things that they, they need to think about really in the context of, of nutrition um, in sick animals. But before we finish, there was just a few things that I wanted to kind of knock off really because they're sort of relatively classical things that come up in discussions with, with people in practice and with students. Um, so the first one was that if you have a patient that has had a gastrointestinal surgical procedure that has involved actually opening the GI tract, and obviously people tend to therefore worry about leakage from the GI tract. Um, so what would you say in terms of when they should be, obviously I'm generalizing and there may be exceptional circumstances for each individual patient, but in general, when should they be offering water and especially food and why? Well, I, actually my, my strong belief is that they should be offered food and water as soon as they're awake. Um, so, obviously, there are effects of general anesthesia on GI motility, on being fully conscious. But once the clinician is convinced that that has um, sort of passed and they're conscious, they should be offered. They, they should be, there's no benefit to withholding food or water. And one of the important things about healing is blood supply. So one of the things that feeding does, it increases motility, it increases blood supply. So it actually has the, withholding food has the opposite effect that they thought there was. People thought that if you withheld food, there was no stomach acid and therefore they're protected. But you know, we know that the gut, when you have surgery, is not held by the mucosa. Mm -hmm. It's a submucosa that's a holding cell. But the mucosa is what de is dependent on enterofeeding to get the blood supply. So it's actually counterintuitive to withhold food mm -hmm. uh, in situations. So they should be fed as soon as they're, they're ready. Excellent. Um, and then the second type was the patients that, that we see quite often um, refer to us really are dogs that have clinically significant um, acute pancreatitis. So these are dogs that have obviously had some vomiting, nausea, abdominal pain, and clearly at least some of those signs need to have been controlled before you consider feeding. But again, um, I think there's been a shift in terms of the recommendation about how soon it's appropriate to feed those patients. So I wondered if you could say a little bit about that, please. Yeah, I think that, you know, classically pancreatitis was sort of the main example where you would want to withhold food. And that was because of this fear that feeding or even offering food to pancreatitic would exacerbate the condition. And now we have data to show that actually that does not happen. Um, there are, you know, animals that have vomiting or regurgitation is showing intolerance, but not all animals that have pancreatitis actually have those mm. issues. So they should be offered. I think that the shift is now unless they show you that they can't tolerate, they should be offered. There is no benefit to just blanket withhold food from animals with pancreatitis because, you know, if it's 50 or 60% of animals that actually will tolerate, they actually gain a benefit. Now, although the data is pretty preliminary mm. uh, that we have in veterinary patients, there is no counter evidence to show that is is a, a, a danger to them to be fed. So, so a blanket policy of starve for 24, 48 hours is, is no longer considered? Yeah, I mean, you know, to show that there is a detriment within 24 hours is very difficult, but there's also, uh, there might be benefits to 
offering food sooner rather than later. So I think that the shift is there is no requirement to withhold food from these animals for the fear of making the disease worse. So before all animals were withheld food until they stopped vomiting. And now, even in the face of vomiting, they might still benefit from being offered. So I think that that's the major shift. So a case-by-case decision, essentially. Yes, but but the removal of the blanket policy that animals with pancreatitis cannot be fed. And one of the greatest examples is cats. Uh, There's never been a recommendation to withhold feeding from cats with pancreatitis, and we know that they didn't get worse with it. Mm -hmm. So I think that we actually have some good evidence to say we should try in dogs. Excellent. Um, and then there was a couple of final things, and um, one was that one of the things that you sometimes hear people saying is, if they document a mild or a borderline um, hypoglycemia in a patient, they say, "Oh, that's because he or she is not eating." And I wondered whether you could say whether that is something that can be true, and also, sort of, to what degree can nutritional status actually affect your blood glucose concentration, and if it does, in what sort of patients might might that be a phenomenon? Yeah, that's a good question. It's actually very difficult to link the constant minute-by-minute glucose levels on nutritional status because it also might differ between dogs and cats Mm -hmm. because the liver should store enough glycogen in a normal um, animal or at least a omnivorous animal for at least 24 to 48 hours. Mm -hmm. What we don't know is cats have the same sort of Supply. They are much more dependent on, on protein metabolism. But still, they can maintain normal glucose levels probably for several days. So it's possible that uh, an advanced state malnourished uh, case may have difficulty maintaining blood glucose. But in the short term, it's very difficult to imagine that they will run out of all its glycogen stores, mm-hmm. plus lose the ability to catabolize amino acids mm-hmm. and sort of get the to, to get enough carbohydrates to, to maintain blood glucose. So my view is that there's probably something more to it mm-hmm. than just not being fed to explain the hypoglycemia. There has to be. I mean, we have some data to show that hormonal changes occur in critical illness. So it might be that lack of insulin or maybe a surge of insulin that's leading to changes in glucose mm-hmm. more so than, than um, simple starvation. Um, I guess with, with the exception of puppies, kittens, and toy teacup chihuahua type creatures, um, Excellent. And then the other one is about um, if people are weighing their hospitalized patients regularly, they they sometimes will say, oh, if a patient has lost some weight, they'll say, oh, that's because he or she hasn't been eating. Um, And again, to what extent does nutritional status actually impact on your body weight in a kind of short-term way? Um, Or is there more of a component of fluid status versus nutritional status? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question, and and we are struggling with that. Um, I think that daily body weights is a good practice, but the expectation that it would change very much, especially because our scales are probably not that accurate in giving you the absolute grams. Um, But I think the fluid shifts are probably more likely uh, the reason to explain dramatic shifts in body weight. Now, the average hospitalization for an animal is probably two to three days. and therefore, it's very difficult to be able to imagine that um, you may have changes due to malnutrition 
uh, during hospitalization. Now, if you have the extreme cases where we have here sometimes where animals mm -hmm. are here for weeks, mm -hmm. that you can then make a picture. Now, to add that, uh, I think the body weight assessment alone is not sufficient and we mm -hmm. need additional tools. Now, body condition score is sort of the next best thing, um, but there are some limitations because it was designed to actually look at fat stores. Uh, you know, body condition, the history of it mm -hmm. is looking at how, how, how the fitness due to the ability to store fat. And only recently have we actually looked at a muscle condition score that were more interesting in a catabolic patient. Mm -hmm. Now, that scale is actually now part of the WSAVA sort of global nutrition guidelines, but there's lack of data to support its um, validity. But I think it's a good starting point, and I think we need to get data to say if you have a loss of muscle condition that you can quantify in this scale, that that means something. Um, but I think it's we probably should be using this muscle condition score just as we are the body condition, but we're kind of not quite there yet in terms of universal adoption. I've not, I've not seen that actually. Um, is it the sort of thing that you would expect the numbers to change on a daily basis? Not in a daily basis, um, but I think it's a, an important appreciation that that should be documented mm -hmm. somewhere during the hospitalization and then kept tracked of. Um, because I can certainly see that you know for some of the cases that we have here, especially that you can certainly see that some you can visibly see changes in the patients, and still something like that would be more would be more sensitive. Excellent. And then the last thing I wanted to ask you today was one of the things that I know we don't do in this hospital, and yet I know that it is a relatively common practice in a lot of first opinion practices, and somewhere in between those, there's probably a a happy medium is the, the, the thing of kind of syringe feeding patients. And one of the arguments people sometimes say to me when I say, oh, we don't tend to do it and this is the reasons why we don't, is that it can sometimes act as a kind of trigger to get the patient to start feeding themselves. And so they syringe feed once or twice and the patient starts eating. And I know that we have concerns about the amount of kind of calorific requirements you can provide by that route, patient welfare, etc. So I guess I just wondered if we could end with you just saying a few words about syringe feeding and your kind of recommendations or your perspective on, on yeah. that really. I mean, syringe feeding is very interesting because I, I do think there is a value to them. Um, it's all about populations. Now, there's a host of animals that are dealt with at first opinion level and the issues are resolved. You know, animals come in to first opinion practices with hyporexia or decrease in appetite and relatively quickly that's resolved. And using syringe feeding in those cases may be part of the solution or may be coincidental that it was a, a self-limiting problem. I think that when animals get referred to a, a referral institution because of persistent problems that fail to respond to initial management, I think that now that defines a, a shift in your population. Mm -hmm. And therefore, using these sort of measures may not be effective enough. One of, sort of the critiques of it is being able to meet what we estimate to be their minimum requirement that be met with that. And the other factor is that I think an animal to tolerate syringe feeding has to be relatively well. Mm. An animal that is severely ill, that is maybe not able to sort of guard their airway, is at risk of aspiration. And we definitely have seen cases that have aspiration pneumonia and part of their previous management was syringe feeding. Mm. I have a, 
a particular sort of concern for neurological patients mm -hmm. where they may be not fully conscious, they have cranial nerve abnormalities, and therefore we're not quite sure if they can, you know, elicit the gag response. And those patients that well-intentioned are being syringe-fed mm. may actually be a high risk of aspiration. So um, I guess it's fair to say that um, it's a very short-term tool. And also one of the things I think that worries me about syringe-feeding is that I'm never very clear where syringe feeding becomes kind of force feeding, and we know about um, you know food aversion and, and trying to force feed nauseous patients, etc. So, I guess from my point of view, that's part of my concern. Apart from the things you mentioned already, is if syringe feeding and the patient's very compliant and wants it, versus actually syringe feeding in a more kind of forceful way. And I guess that's something that again we um, we need to be people need to be very careful about. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that you know people talk about like when do you worry about creating food aversion, is basically whenever feeding becomes a negative event. Mm. So if you're struggling to get an animal to take in the food, then it's a negative experience, mm. and that risk of food aversion becomes more apparent. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we worry about it in cats a lot more, but people need to appreciate that food aversion is a learned behavior. They're processing sort of input, and if it's you know being toweled, cornered in the, in the back of a kennel, while being forced a particular food, that will create a food aversion, or that can at least uh, create a food aversion. Because, I mean, something like that sounds very obvious, but, you know, it, it definitely, I've seen it being done on occasion um, in, in first opinion kind of practices I've been to, and I know that here we're very strict about nipping that sort of stuff in the bud, but I think I think it's definitely worth, um, worth us ending on. So, so Dan, um, look, sadly, that's all we have time for today, and... Um, Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to come and join me. Um, My pleasure. I think there are some things that hopefully we get together in the future and talk about, not just nutrition-related, but a whole property of other, okay. of other things as well. That would be great. Um, so for the listeners, as always, do, do feel free to get in touch and provide us your feedback. Um, you can email me directly at schasani at rvc.ac.uk. You can also use the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page or you can tweet at Royal Vet College using the hashtag SAClinPod. And until next time, then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.